Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sun's almost up. Your attention, please. Listen to this carefully and keep calm. Yeah, let me put on the radio. Everybody's talking to each other. Everybody's tuned to Bradley J. Bradley J. They listen right till dawn. Midnight till five. Right until dawn. Everybody's now got something to say. What do you say? The radio is going all night long. Jay talking. Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. Back in December, December 26, 2018, a gentleman named Vladimir Isashenkov wrote an article with the title, Putin Crows as He Oversees Russian Hypersonic Weapons Test. And the article continues out of AP. Russian President, uh, President Vladimir Putin oversaw a test Wednesday of a new hypersonic glide vehicle declaring that the weapon is impossible to intercept and will ensure Russia's security for decades to come. The avant-garde is invulnerable to intercept by any existing and prospective missile defense means of the potential adversary, Putin said after the test. Adding that the new weapon will enter service next year, that would be 19, with the military's strategic missile forces. And to talk about this and try to figure out how true all that is, is William Hartung, who is director of the Arms and Security Project. Sir, thanks for being with us. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, how true is this? Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, you know, Putin is clearly bragging about it. Uh, but there's no independent verification that uh, this thing works as yet. There's no question they're trying to develop it as well as an, uh, an underwater drone that could carry a nuclear weapon and various other things. Uh, but I think there's a couple things about it. First of all, even if they had such a weapon, we have 4,000 nuclear warheads, and a small number of those would destroy Russia as a functioning society. So that kind of nuclear deterrence, if you attack us, it's the end of, of you, basically, would still exist even if they had such a weapon. But it's not clear uh, that they really do. I, I think Putin is is bragging about it because uh, he feels like it gives them an advantage. But I think it's to some degree a bluff. Okay. Now, wh- how is it supposed to work? You're a weapons guy. I'm sure you can be very specific about how something like this would work. Well, the idea is uh, would travel at at huge speeds, about 20 times the speed of sound, uh, and would be maneuverable. Uh, it would be carried by an intercontinental ballistic missile, but the smaller missile, the hypersonic missile, uh, would then be able to take evasive action to get around any potential uh, missile defense system. Now, the thing is, current uh, Russian warheads on their regular missiles, with some simple decoys, can already overwhelm our missile defense system. So it, it doesn't change things dramatically, but it would give, you know, Russia a degree of assurance that in a conflict we couldn't block their missiles. So we would be as much at risk as, as they are. So that, that's why they're pursuing it. Uh, and we're in a period where arms control agreements are uh, under pressure. Uh, you know, the um, 
Trump administration wants to step out from under an agreement that would um, block medium-range nuclear missiles in Europe. Uh, the New START treaty, which blocks longer-range missiles, is up for renewal, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm uh, on the Trump administration's part to uh, you know put that keep that in effect. So all those things, the, the dropping to the side of arms control, the research on new kinds of weapons, some of the rhetoric that's gone back and forth on the nuclear issue um, certainly makes it a more dangerous time uh, than it's been in a while on the nuclear weapons front. But I, I think it's as much to do with the rhetoric and the decline of arms control as with this particular research program that, that Putin's talking about. Okay, now how would this bluff help Putin? Wouldn't it just, if even if the bluff worked, anger us or it wouldn't intimidate us? It would, if anything, spur us cause us to spend more money on more arms to further overwhelm him. I don't see how he sees it as a, a benefit. I think he gets some domestic benefit to sort of posture in this way and say they have superior technology. They're also concerned about U.S. missile defenses, even though uh, they're not sufficient to block their current arsenal. They have this fear in the back of their minds that we'll come up with some novel solution to this and that therefore they need sort of a next generation of missiles to overcome something we don't actually have yet. So it's it's kind of the arms race scenario. It's like I'm going to get ahead of you and, and the country doing the arms race and somehow thinks they're going to get ahead and stay ahead when actually all they do is stimulate right. uh, investment by the other side. And so you get into that cycle and, and President Trump also seems to be of that mindset. You know, he was given a um, briefing uh you know, in his first year in office about the decline in the number of global nuclear weapons uh, since the 60s, which is a good development. And all he said was, why don't we have more? You know, why don't we build 10,000 more? And, and this was the um, meeting at which Rex Tillerson uh, left shaking his head and uh, apparently referred to the president as a moron, which eventually resulted in him being fired. But so um, President Trump has this kind of simple idea that more is better when it comes to nuclear weapons, Putin wants to posture in this sort of macho fashion, saying, you know, we've got a better technology than you do. So that's that's what creates the danger and the, um, you know, the underpinnings of a possible new nuclear arms race. Does Vladimir Putin really believe that we would first strike, or is that what he wants his people to believe? I think um, it's there's the danger of kind of this old Cold War thinking that says, well, they may or may not do it, but we have to be prepared. It's sort of a worst-case scenario approach. So I don't know that he believes it. I, I think he, his military people would plan for it because they're, they're kind of on autopilot. And I think he gets as much in, in terms of internal support and his own ego by taking such a posture. But, I, I, you know, in his heart of hearts, of course, I don't. Unlike George W. Bush, I can't peer into his soul. But um, my belief is that I, I have a hard time believing he thinks we would do that because it's it would be hugely risky uh, because, because, of course, if it failed, uh, we ourselves would uh, suffer a nuclear attack, which would be an unprecedented catastrophe for the United States. Would a power like China or Russia ever try to destroy the United States because well, at least China is so tied up economically that it would be devastating to them economically even. 
Is, it, is that the case with Russia as well? Uh, well, Russia is not as economically linked to us, but it sort of comes back to why take that risk? Um, but the, I'd say the biggest problem could be uh, a nuclear war by kind of bluster or accident. Um, both sides have these long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, that within a half an hour could take out cities on the other side, could attempt to take out their weapons and so forth. And in a crisis, uh, some experts suggest the president might have as little as 10 minutes to decide, you know, is that blip on the radar screen an incoming missile or, uh, you know, something else. And, and there have been cases in the past where we've come very close to launching uh, nuclear weapons on a false alarm. So, uh, you know, some of these systems have sort of this built-in danger. In effect, the intercontinental ballistic missile, former Secretary of Defense uh, William Perry, has called the most dangerous weapon in our arsenal because of that, that danger of an accidental launch or sort of a panicky, uh, you know, launch of such a thing. So, um, you know, I, I think if we're going to have nuclear weapons, they should at least structure the forces so that kind of accident is, is much less likely to happen. And there's been... Proposals by people like Adam Smith, who's the new head of the Armed Services Committee in the in the House, to say, well, we should have a agreement on both sides. We're not going to be the first ones to use nuclear weapons, which then would reduce that idea of an accidental launch in the panic situation. I wanted to ask you, I'm guessing you know this kind of thing. Is it really necessary for the President of the United States to authorize a nuclear strike if there were really only 10 minutes in which you might have to respond it's got to be a possibility that you couldn't find the president. Oh, he he was, you know, 10 minutes away somehow. And, I mean, it's unlikely, but there must be, I'm guessing, an alternative plan if you can't find the president. There's conflicting reports on that. Uh, you know, one school of argument is basically the president's got to authorize it. Um, the other is uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who used to be uh very much in the know in terms of our nuclear weapons policy and our targeting and so forth, and has written a book about it, uh, has indicated that people lower down the chain could make such a decision uh, if the president couldn't be reached. And, of course, there's human beings doing this. So whatever it says on a piece of paper, um, somebody could always panic. Somebody could just say, well, it's you know, we, we can't wait and so forth. So it's it's a very dicey kind of situation because it seems like if that were the case that the russians could somehow arrange with their spies to have the president unavailable for 15 minutes and then launch their first strike now in a related question does the uh can the people down the chain of command refuse to initiate a strike if even if the president orders it what if they say hey, this is not right, we're not under attack, we're not going to do this. Is that possible? Well, it would be kind of the equivalent of civil disobedience. You know, legally they're not supposed to. There's been cases in the past uh, when Richard Nixon was viewed as being uh, somewhat erratic, we might say. Um, then Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger told people in the military chain of command to consult him first before they followed any orders from Nixon about launching nuclear weapons. So uh, there's some precedent for people uh, below the president to try to 
blunt uh, that authority. Um, and again, having having never been in that situation, thankfully, um, you know, we don't know what would happen. We do, we do know that there's been cases uh, on the Russian side where uh, people decided not to go ahead when, when there were some indications that they might be under attack. And, and there were people sort of close to the situation that said they didn't believe those signals, and they um, persuaded uh, then-President Yeltsin to hold off from launching their nuclear weapons. So, um, you know, it, it, in a crisis like that, there's no telling what will happen, but I think uh, certainly it's not out of the question that somebody lower down might say, you know, if this is going to end the world as we know it, I'm not going to follow their order. But that's not how they're trained, and that's not what they're, you know, on paper supposed to do. I'm sure you're familiar with Abel Archer, that exercise the Russians many thought was a, was a, a run up to a first strike. Is that what you were referring to just a minute, a moment ago? Yes, yes. Okay. Is there a situation on our side where we almost launched? Oh, there have been many. Uh, there's a book by Eric Schlosser called Command and Control, uh, which goes through a whole series of false alarms that the United States has had to deal with. Um, and there was an accidental launch of a Titan missile, uh, which is a, was a large, kind of older-era uh, nuclear-armed long-range missile uh, in Arkansas, where the thing actually um, somebody dropped a wrench, uh, fire in the ICBM silo. The warhead actually separated. Uh, we've dropped nuclear bombs on ourselves uh, in North Carolina uh, some decades ago, which thankfully did not go off, but uh, all the fail-safe systems that won uh, had failed. Uh, there's some cases that William Perry talked about where uh, somebody put in a kind of a training tape about what it would be like if there were incoming missiles, and uh, he and President Clinton had to decide if that, in fact, was a real attack. So, uh, yeah, these things have happened more, more frequently than um, than people realize. Can you talk a little bit about another weapon that was rolled out at the same time as this hypersonic glider, the so-called apocalypse torpedo? Is that another uh, sort of Jules Verne kind of thing? Uh, I, I think it's not clear that they really have that technology. You know, the theory is uh, because it's underwater, it, it doesn't have to deal with the way our missile defenses are structured and therefore uh, could get to its target, uh, you know, uninhibited. Um but whether they have such a large thing at the speed that they claim is still speculative. And I mean, you know, it's it's like basically Putin periodically puts on the show where he says, oh, yes, we've got these new weapons that are impossible to defend against. But it's not clear that they really have developed them to the stage where they could be deployed or usable or, or even whether some of these capabilities are, are possible to, to develop. I heard so. Is this... Apocalypse torpedo, something that is set up so that even after a, a nuclear exchange and every, any, it's all over, that somewhere down the road, maybe a month, maybe a year, that these doomsday devices, these doomsday submarines or torpedoes launch and, and, and we would know about them and realize that even if we won the war down the road, we would be destroyed too. Is, is, is that a possibility? I don't know if it is. Um, I mean, I think the problem is um, as long as we have these things, there's so many possible scenarios and so many situations where 
it's it's in some ways a form of psychological warfare, you know, because you're, you're trying to evaluate the intentions of the other side and do they have, you know, capabilities we don't know about. And, and so that's what makes the whole thing so unstable. But, um, you know, the, the basic fact that if one side attacks the other, uh, the other will be destroyed as a functioning society is what has kept us so far from going over that line. But I, I think it is, it's a dangerous situation to have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons deployed in the world, not just in the U.S. and Russia, but uh, by China, by Pakistan, by India, by Israel, North Korea, and so forth. So, um, you know, at some point, the only way we're going to be safe is not by new technology, but by trying to roll back uh, the numbers of those things that exist. And, and that's a huge challenge, you know, at a time when a diplomacy is not front and center, you know, globally. All right. Well, can I ask about Korea, the status of that nuclear program? Are they really a threat? What should we know about Korea at this stage, North Korea? Well, it's believed they may have a dozen nuclear warheads. Uh, it, it's not clear that they have ballistic missiles that can reach us. Um, they haven't tested enough to really be confident of that. Uh, the thing is, were they to use them, they, they have a small number uh, versus the hundreds and thousands that we have. So um, deterrence would still hold. I mean, there would be no reason for them to attack us with a nuclear weapon unless uh, Kim Jong-un thought he was about to be eliminated. I mean, you know, if he thought, okay, this is, a, this is the final attack, uh, I'm personally going to die, my society is going to be destroyed, so as my last act, I'm going to launch these things. Um, so unless you're backed into a corner, uh, it, it's more of a deterrent weapon than a, than the weapon that would be used to uh, attack the United States. But certainly, uh, I give President Trump credit for having discussions on this. It sort of stands out in his nuclear policy. It's the one area where he's actually uh, trying to negotiate as opposed to having uh, ripped up the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, said he might get rid of the agreement on intermediate nuclear weapons in Europe, and it's not really clear if he's going to um, resign and uh, renew the uh, New START Treaty on long-range ballistic missiles. So uh, I feel like in this area, at least, they're on the right track because there's there's no immediate danger of North Korea attacking us. So we have time to try to lock down those missiles and roll back that program. And I think that's far uh, preferable to the, the war rhetoric that, that was going on, um, you know, before uh, the Trump administration turned around and decided to, to have talks. If North Korea were to launch a missile or even 12 missiles at us and hit us with half of them, would we respond with our nuclear arsenal and what would be the point? Well, I think these are such horrific things to contemplate, but were they to, for some reason, uh, some suicidal reason, decide to attack us with nuclear missiles, uh, they would probably kill, well, millions of Americans. They wouldn't destroy our entire society, at which point I, I think um, there would be a response. Now, it's possible if they thought they could take out the regime, and Kim Jong-un in particular, with conventional, with non-nuclear weapons, perhaps they would do that. But, but the system is kind of primed that a nuclear attack calls for a nuclear response. So, uh, you know, of course, the hope is we never, we never get to test that. But um, it's, it's 
fairly likely that there would be a nuclear response. Because they would have shot their, you know, shot all their guns at once, son. And you know. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Not really accomplishing anything, but it's some sort of punitive action, which would only. You know, destroy the earth well the problem is of course also in that region i mean the the blast the radiation the fire would affect um u.s allies uh, and not just north korea you know in south korea and right. so it would be a a, a, a very risky uh, decision but of course i think once the united states had been attacked all bets would be off in terms of thinking through the kind of stuff you're you're suggesting mm-hmm. Um, so let's move on to your books. I'd like to hear about And Weapons for All, which is a critique. It's been out for a long time, a critique of U.S. arms sales and policy uh, from Nixon through Clinton. And can you talk about it in general? And then maybe take one sale, maybe the most recent one you can come up with, and talk about it and criticize it, if you will. Sure. Well, I wrote the book was my first book. I was considerably younger then. Uh, and um, I was kind of provoked by the Iran-Contra hearings. There was a little moment when Oliver North, who organized, um, you know, the pipeline that did an end run around the congressional ban and arming uh, the right-wing Contra movement in, in Nicaragua. Uh, basically, they broke the law. They avoided Congress. They set up a private supply network for the Contras, and it was found out uh, because one of the guys, one of the pilots who was helping deliver the weapons was captured in Nicaragua, and he spilled the beans in a press conference. So so there was a big investigation, and North was at the center of it. And when he was uh, testifying, he had all these telegrams of support, and some people were viewing him as a hero, and I just couldn't stand it. So I decided to look deeper into this problem of the arms trade, and it ends up a lot of the most dangerous deals are not these these secret illegal ones, but they're the ones that are uh, above board, they're done legally, but, you know, we, we are regimes and groups that end up using the weapons against us in one form or another. You know, so for in Afghanistan, uh, a lot of the Islamic extremist groups that we funded to push back against the Soviet invasion uh, became the base uh, for groups like Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, uh, we, back in the Nixon period, uh, we were arming the Shah of Iran, who was a repressive uh, leader who, who sort of sowed the seeds of his own demise and led to the uh, development of the Islamic regime there that continues to this day. Uh, you know, we used uh, arms and training to overthrow governments in uh, Guatemala, which had a long negative history in Central America. We armed both sides of the Cyprus war between Greece and Turkey. Uh, we illegally armed um, opposition forces in Angola. They were allied with the apartheid regime. So there was a whole series of things like this, which led Congress to push back and create the Arms Export Control Act, which at least gets Congress a vote on whether we sell this stuff. 
And, uh, you know, often that's not put to use. But in the last year or so, there's been a, a growth of concern in Congress about the particular sales the United States has made to Saudi Arabia, uh, which have been used in the brutal war in Yemen, where a lot of civilians have been killed, both through bombing, uh, through a blockade and humanitarian aid, through uh, knocking out water supply systems that have led to a cholera outbreak. It's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, and a lot of it's being done with U.S. fighter planes, U.S. bombs, U.S. attack helicopters that were supplied to Saudi Arabia uh, by the Obama and Trump administration. So uh, last year, at the end of the year, the Senate voted to stop U.S. support for that war, and it was the first time the Senate had taken that kind of measure, probably since when they uh, pulled the funding uh, and helped wind down the war in, in Vietnam. So uh, there is a new kind of focus in Congress on arms sales and when are they in our interests and when aren't they and what kind of regimes are we arming. So uh, some of the things that I've been writing about for years have been of much more interest lately to reporters and others uh, about how the, this whole process works and when are the sales in our interests and when aren't they. So the Saudis... You're probably just the guy to talk to to really understand why we arm the Saudis, the Saudis being who they are and all. It seems uh, counterintuitive, yet we do. How, what are the reasons? Are there, are, there, are there national security reasons? Is it just business? Is it political? It's probably all that. Maybe you can make us understand at least a little better. Yeah, well, I think the administration's reasons... One is they're trying to paint the war in Yemen as a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but if you look more closely, the Houthi rebels, who are the ones, the main ones fighting the Saudis, have their own agenda. They've been sort of neglected politically and economically in that country. And they've been fighting wars against a whole series of different regimes uh, for years. And it was only after the Saudis intervened that Iran started giving them small amounts of weapons. I mean, small compared to what uh, we are selling to the Saudis. Uh, so that I don't think the Iran argument holds up, but it's very much believed uh, by people like Secretary of State Pompeo and others. Then there's the business angle. You know, President Trump used Saudi Arabia as this kind of business bonanza for the United States. And when he went over there on his first foreign trip, um, they allegedly signed these hundreds of billions of dollars of business deals. But I looked into the arms piece of it, and a lot of those deals that Trump claimed credit for had happened years ago under President Obama. So they weren't really anything new that Trump had negotiated himself. Uh, and a lot of them are not going to happen for years, if at all. So it ended up, you know, he was throwing up a big number, like $110 billion. They sold maybe 10 or $15 billion, which is still obviously a lot of money and a lot of business, but nothing like what Trump was talking about. And in terms of our huge economy, you know, um, less than a tenth of a percent of our jobs are tied to foreign sales. And even that gets tipped away at because the Saudis now want some of the stuff they buy to be produced in Saudi Arabia. So you've got a kind of a fairly marginal contribution to our economy, and President Trump is willing to put that ahead of human rights, our reputation in the world. Uh, you know, he basically came out and said, you know, even if the Saudis had murdered uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist, which they clearly did, um, you know, business rules. And then these deals with Boeing and Lockheed Martin and others 
were more important uh, than a stand on human rights and whether or not we should be associated with the kind of regime that the Saudis now are. So, And then there's talk of possible economic benefits for the Trump empire. I'm not as familiar with those, but there was a potential hotel deal. And uh, Jared Kushner is very close with the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, and there's some interest in everything from you know, selling them nuclear reactors from the United States to real estate development to who knows what. So uh, you never know for sure with the Trump administration when these kinds of personal economic uh, deals and issues might be influencing policy. But I, I think it's it's in the mix, at least. I don't know that it's uh, primarily driving it. So, And then finally, you know, there's the issue of oil. And, of course, they're a big oil supplier. Uh, the deal historically was you give us and our allies oil on, you know, good terms that work for us, and we will protect you regardless of how you treat your own people. Um, but now, of course, they're not only suppressing their own people, but they're causing this huge humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And actually, they now supply less than 10% of our oil imports, and the United States is more of a uh, producer in its own right. So a lot of the old reasons, some of which were, in my mind, still somewhat questionable on the on balance, uh, don't even exist anymore. So, so I think there's a little bit of a hangover. You know, it's just like, well, they've always been an ally. Let's just keep chugging. And I, I think it's time to re-evaluate that whole relationship. William Hartung, director of the Arms and Security Project, is with us talking about arms and security. Can you tell me what the Arms and Security Project is? Uh, yes. So we're based at the Center for International Policy, which is a D.C.-based uh, think tank. And the role of the Center for International Policy is to try to be an independent voice on foreign policy and defense issues. A, a lot of think tanks that um, work on these subjects uh, get money from defense contractors or foreign governments, and we don't take that kind of money. And we try to be kind of a sort of an independent voice. So we're not uh, partisan. We don't, you know, sort of align with one party or the other. But we try to sort of put some quality information into the mix when Congress discusses these things or they're in the press, uh, because you know, as as you know, they're complicated issues, and the more people understand them, the better chance we have of of making good choices. Do they ever hire laypersons for think tanks? I, I'm not expert enough really to be in one, but I have always wanted to be. There's got to be a role for a guy like me. Maybe I can just throw out questions to the think tank to think about various scenarios. Sure. Uh, or, you know, you can teach us about the media. Which is, <laughs> yes, is, I actually could. Kind of, All right. Yeah, exactly. Without, without knowing how to reach the media, you're, not, you're kind of talking to yourself. So... Let's get into your most recent book, Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. What are you trying to say to us there? Well, I chose Lockheed Martin uh, because it's the largest weapons contractor in the world. And in current years, they get about $50 billion a year from our government, billion with a B, uh, which is larger, for example, than the budget of the State Department uh, and of many countries around the world. Uh, and so... You know, it was partly how does one company get that powerful? And as I traced it back, they started out, uh, the Lockheed brothers in the teens of the uh, 20th century, uh, following after the Wright brothers to develop a commercial aircraft. But after World War II, they got very big into military production. And now they produce 
missile defense systems. Uh, they make armored vehicles. They make fighter aircraft. Uh, they make uh, you know nuclear missiles. Uh, for a long time, they ran one of the nuclear uh, warhead facilities. Uh, they're the biggest uh, political contributor. Uh, they have many people go in and out of government to help you know advocate their case at the Pentagon and elsewhere. Uh, so they're essentially. When Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex and the unwarranted influence of the arms lobby working in conjunction uh, with the military, uh, Lockheed Martin was kind of a good case study of that. You know, so sort of following how that company grew into this huge industrial behemoth that basically is supported by our tax dollars, and how they skew our policies, uh, foreign military policies to serve really as kind of their special interests without a larger frame about what might be best for the national interest. What are some ways that money gets wasted? You, uh, you know, they have these projects and they scrap them. There's the F-35 plane. How much do we would we really need to spend, in your estimation, to have the hardware and the, the whole military thing we have I guess a better way to put it would be, how much did we overpay for what we have, maybe in a percentile? Well, I would say, you know, we're spending $700 billion a year. Uh, in an ideal world, we could probably cut a couple hundred billion off of that. So perhaps overpaying by at least a third, I think, from what we would really need to defend ourselves. Um, are we, and you are we pretty deeper, inefficient? Yeah. Are we pretty inefficient at it, uh, defending ourselves? Are the Russia... They defend themselves pretty well, and they do it for a fraction. How do they do it? Why can't we be more like that? I think the reason the United States spends so much, I mean, we spend about 10 times what Russia spends. We spend uh, two and a half, three times what China spends. It's because of this notion that we have to go everywhere, fight anywhere at any moment. Uh, so we have, you know, 800 global military bases. We have a global Navy. Uh, we have, uh, you know, air bases all over the place. We have a large army of Marines, so we can intervene on the ground in countries all over the world. Uh, so that's the first thing is this kind of, you know, the United States is the only country that's seeking that kind of global military reach. Uh, but then, you know, feeding that machine, uh, there's all kinds of dysfunction. You know, there's cost overruns on weapon systems. There's a huge bureaucracy. The Pentagon did a study. They found they were wasting about $25 billion a year just on excess overhead. And they tried to bury the study because it was right coming up on budget season, and they didn't want Congress to know that they had all this waste because they thought they'd get less money. Congress would say, you know, use the money we're giving you more effectively. Don't just keep coming back for more and more if you're going to waste, you know, huge amounts of it. So, uh, and this is all fed by this military-industrial complex. So you've got, uh, for example, my uh, colleagues at the Project on Government Oversight uh, just did a study showing that just in 2018, 645 individuals went from our government to work as lobbyists or executives or in other capacities for weapons contractors. So if you work at the Pentagon, it's kind of two things. One is you go for the contractor, and then you go back and talk to your old colleagues and say, cut us a break here. You know, of course there's cost overruns, but keep the money flowing because you might want to come and work with us one day. You know, so, so there's, you know, between this revolving door, as they call it, the campaign contributions, the fact that the production is spread out among many congressional districts. So some members, you know, they might want to admit that F-35 is a terrible system, but, you know, a piece of the engine is built in their district. They don't want to, uh, you know, deal with the, the jobs problem of 
voting against something that's built in their area. All this kind of snowballs, and it allows for a lot of waste because it's this kind of almost self-perpetuating system. And, of course, it's supposed to be about defending us, not about a, a scheme for contractors to make money, but it's, it's kind of both. And so that leads to all kinds of distortions. Of course, it's all too complicated for us to keep an eye on, and that's what, what we trust our legislators to do. Do they do it, and do they knowingly betray us? Uh, it's a mixed bag. I, I think some members just kind of go along. They take the Pentagon at its word, or they think it's too big of an issue to uh, address, or they kind of posture, and they kind of follow this kind of fear argument that the Pentagon puts out and don't really do you know, their own assessments of what the challenges are. Uh, but there are members who are kind of uh, gadflies and advocates who've done good work. I think, you know, Senator Markey's done good work on the nuclear sphere. Uh, there's a member, uh, Ro Khanna from Silicon Valley in the House, who's been a leader on uh, trying to stop our arms to Saudi Arabia, as has uh, Senator Murphy from Connecticut and others. So on specific issues, I think you've got members, they're following things, uh, they're following up. Uh, they're really trying to push to be advocates for the for the public, but they are the exception. You know, a lot of members just go along to get along, or they're compromised by the money they get from industry, or the fact that they've got a big plant in their district, or the fact that their former staff member is now lobbying for Lockheed Martin and so forth. So, uh, I think it's impressive the members who do stand up in the midst of all this can try to make a difference. But of course, we we need more of them. Okay, one more question. In the past, it seemed that the president and the military were kind of on the same team. I don't get that same bond this time, especially with what's, what's been going on. Is there a disconnect between the president and the military, and what could be the results of that? I think there is. Um, you know, for one thing, he seems to view the military as um, he would like them to be a partisan pro-Donald Trump organization. You see that when he speaks, whether it be at the CIA or at, a, at the Pentagon, where he, he makes partisan arguments, you know, support me on X, Y, and Z uh, that I'm fighting the Democrats on. Or he says things like, I'm sure a lot of you voted for me, right? Uh, things that are not appropriate for a president to do. So I think that has caused concern in the ranks of the military and the military leadership. On the other hand, he has brought military people in at the top levels of his government. Um, you know, National Security Advisor, who was a general, uh, James Mattis, who was former Secretary of Defense, was a general. John Kelly, who used to be his chief of staff, was a general. Of course, they're all gone now. Uh, and so that may be part of that shifting kind of relationship. I, I think there's a there's some real questions uh, in the military about uh, the judgment of this president and also his his ability to view uh, the military as a, a force to defend the country, not to help a particular uh, personage or, or party. Great job. I really appreciate it. You answered all my questions and then some. William Hartung, director of the Arms and Security Project and author of multiple books. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. 
Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to 5 on WBZ Boston's News Radio. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.